We're glad that you're here. Special welcome to anybody that's here for the first time. If you have your Bibles, would you take them on out? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to also welcome all of our locations that are tuning in, our online and television audience. We know God has a special word for each and every one of you today. I'm going to take your Bible out. If you haven't already, hold it up nice and high. Let's go ahead and make this declaration of our faith all together. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen and amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, chapter number one. Jonah, chapter number one. I love the story of Jonah. We don't preach on it that much, but I promise you that it's got some wonderful things in, in here for your spiritual growth and edification. Jonah chapter number one, we're going to begin it in verse number one. The scripture says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittal, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lower parts of the ship. He had laid down, and he was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we would not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up. Throw me into the sea, then the sea will be calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, and they said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
today, as we continue our series Unhindered, where we're learning how to get out of God's way so that God can do everything for us and through us that he has designed, I want to minister to you from the story of what has been called the prodigal prophet himself. On the subject, drop the weight of running. Drop the weight of running. Let's pray. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, today we come to you. We open our hearts. We know that you speak to the spirit, to our spirits so that we can become more like you. And today we pray that you would make a divine deposit on the inside of every one of us that would help us to be everything that you want us to. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. We are once again revisiting this all-important word for our souls for this new season, 2024, and that is living an unhindered life. And I want to remind you where we began last week when we took our lead from Hebrews chapter number 12, beginning in verse 1. Just as a reminder, it says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily ensnare us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, in order for us to run the race that God has designed for us and to do it successfully, we have to drop the weight and the sin that hinders us, that slows us down, that trips us up, that derails us, that makes it harder for us, and sometimes, sadly, even prevents us from finishing the course that has been set for us by God. And the obvious way to point the finger at, the number one thing we need to drop in our life is sin. Known sin in our lives, sin that we tolerate, brings with it a whole heap of trouble. Without re-preaching last week's sermon, let me simply remind you of the words of Benjamin Franklin when he said, sin is not hurtful because it is forbidden, it is for- forbidden because it is hurtful. In other words, God wants us to drop the weight of sin because of the adverse consequences, both naturally and spiritually, that sin causes in our lives. Nowadays, nowadays people are on all sorts of diets, right? Gluten-free diets, carb-free diets, sugar-free diets. Here's a good one for you. How about a sin-free diet? How about we drop the weight of sin? It sounds bland, Pastor. Sounds like it's not much fun. Sounds like it's not really appetizing. I promise you, if you go on a sin-free diet, you'll look better. You'll feel better. You'll have more power. You'll have more anointing. You'll be closer to Jesus. Your prayers will be more powerful. You will walk in a light that you never have before. Let's drop the weight of sin. Let's get rid of the things that are ensnaring us in our life that we know about. But, you know, there's a whole host of other things. Things that are not clear sins per se, but rather are weights in our life that slow us down. They create drag on our destiny, on the destiny that God has designed for us. And so we now turn our attention to them. And from this great cloud of witnesses that is around us, these saints that have already run their race and have graduated into glory, but whose stories are left behind to mentor us so that we don't mess out like they did. Out steps Jonah. And he's famous, Jonah, for the fish that swallowed him, right? Everybody knows the story of Jonah because of the fish. And the fish leads some people to believe that the story is a mere fable, 
Uh, but how you view this fantastic fish depends on how you view God. How do you view the resurrection? Which is a far greater miracle than having a fish swallow Jonah. What makes the fish swallowing Jonah a real great miracle is that Jonah survived the fish swallowing him. But we know that fish can swallow people. Sharks eat people all the time. Right? And so how you view the fish has everything to do with how do you view God? Do you suffer from a lesser God syndrome? Do you suffer from a God who can't do miracles? Do you suffer from a God who is just ordinary? And if you suffer from a God that is just ordinary and he's not a, a big God, he's a, he's a lesser God to you, then this fish becomes problematic for you. But if you understand who God is, that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that God is the one who made the fish that are in the sea, that God is the one who flung the stars and the sun and the moon into, into their orbit, and if you know that God indeed defeated death, hell, and the grave, then the fish is really no big problem for you. And if you read the text, really the the way the story is written tells us that the fish isn't really a fable. It's not really made up because whenever you read fiction... And, and you'll find that authors try to use great superlatives and, 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 and imaginary words and big adjectives to kind of shock value you when they're trying to tell you something that really isn't true. They want to they want to engulf and engage the reader by making something out more fantastic than it is. But when you read the story of Noah, the fish is only mentioned in two verses, and there are, there are no superlatives. There's nothing extraordinary said about the fish. Matter of fact, it doesn't even say it was a big fish or, 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 or a big whale, if you will, or anything like that. That just says it was a great fish that God had commanded. And so it almost seems like the fish is secondary to the story and that the author is really not trying to make a big deal out of the fish, but rather he's telling us that the fish is just a matter of fact and the fish is really secondary to really what is going on in the story. So let's not get hung up on the fish. And when we come to the story, we find out that what this story is really teaching us what the prodigal prophet is really saying to us and mentoring us in our life so that we can run our race like God intends us to is that you and I need to drop the weight of running from God. And here's a couple of things that he would say, I believe. Number one, running from God means refusing to surrender our will to his. You know the story. God says, go to Nineveh and ask them to repent because their great wickedness has come up before me, and I don't want to judge them for it, which which in and of itself is is amazing. In and of itself should give us a moment of pause, that when great wickedness comes up before God, that God's first inclination is not to judge it or to punish it. Isn't that amazing about God? Aren't you glad God is like that? Aren't you glad that God doesn't have a happy trigger finger? You know, other people, when they think about God, they think that God is just ready to smite them. You know, you do something wrong and pop, God gets you. But thank God God is not like that. Thank God that God's first move is mercy. Thank God that when we get up, his mercy is new every single morning. Thank God that when we do things that are not right, that God doesn't look to get us, but God looks to redeem us, but God looks to call us back to him. And so he tells Jonah, he says, their great wickedness has come up before me. Go and cry against them. Go and invite them into this place of repentance. And you know how the story goes, Noah, uh, or, or Jonah, not Noah. Noah and Jonah, not the same person. Um, but, but Jonah, the Bible says, arise, arose, and he went to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. In other words, he goes in the exact opposite direction of what God told him to do. Called to go east, he goes west. Directed to travel overland, he goes by sea. Sent to a big city, he buys a one-way ticket to the end of the world. Jonah gives God the Heisman. 
Have you ever done that to God before? Have you ever got, have you ever said to God, God, here's the hand. Talk to the hand. Jonah said to the Lord, I love you. I believe in you, but I'm not doing that. Here's my question for you. What is your that? What is the thing that, that God has said to you do? And you're like, is it that apology God has asked you to give? Is it that forgiveness that God has asked you to extend? Is it that help God has asked you to provide? Is it the finances God has asked you to put them first in it? Is it the work that God has asked you to pull back from so you can prioritize your family? Is it the unproductive habit that God has told you is not good for you? Is it the person that God has asked you to share Christ with? Is it, is it your private time with God that he's asked you to be more consistent in? Is it your church commitment that God has asked you to kick up a notch? It, it is your frown that God has asked you to tur- turn upside down? Is it your anger that God is asking you to deal with? What is your that? That thing that God has told you that you need to get rid of, that you need to do, that you need to give up for him, but you've decided to go east instead of west. You decided to go by the sea instead of overland. You decided that instead of a yes to God's will, you said, no, not not your will, God, but mine be done. We all have those areas in our lives where we are saying no to God. And we're running from God and they hinder our race and they prevent us from running fast and free in the destiny that God has for us. What is your that? But number two, Jonah would say, we all have reasons for running. We all have reasons for running. Jonah's reason was it was the Ninevites. Who were they? Well, to Jonah, this was stunning that God would say, go to the Ninevites and, and ask them to repent. After all, he was a Hebrew prophet and a Hebrew prophet going to a Gentile city at this time was unprecedented in every way. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria uh, was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. They were known for dismembering people, for decapitating their enemies and displaying this for everybody to see. After capturing their enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs in one arm and only leave one arm on the person so they could mockingly shake their hand as the person was dying. They forced family members to parade around with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on a pole. They pulled out prisoners' tongues. They stretched out their bodies with ropes so that they could be filleted alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The empire had begun to exact heavy taxes and tribute from Israel during King Jehu and continued throughout the life of Jonah and finally they invaded the northern kingdom and they took over its capital, Samaria. Perhaps even more surprising is that God would ask Jonah to call them to repentance because Jonah was a staunch supporter of King Jeroboam's aggressive military policy to extend Israel's power and influence. He was intensely patriotic and Nineveh was an enemy of Israel and a terrorist state. Hello? Just take a moment and and think about all of what we just said. So Jonah gets this instruction from God, and it makes no sense to him whatsoever. First, there is no way 
that the Ninevites are going to listen to him. Imagine a Jewish rabbi in 1941 standing on the streets of Berlin in Germany asking the Nazis to repent. They would have killed him. Moreover, if he survives and his nation finds out what he did, they would kill him for treason. And so there was the issue, and also there was the issue of justice. How does showing the nation of evildoers mercy jive with them being brought to justice for what they have done? This makes no sense to Jonah. This can't be good for me and my people, God, so No. Don't look at Jonah in that tone of voice. Have you ever added up everything that God has asked you to do, but you couldn't figure out how this could be possibly good for you or your people? You added it all up. You said, God, this doesn't make sense. I can't see how this can turn for my benefit. I can't see how this can benefit my family. I can't see how this can benefit this or that or the other thing. And so, God, because I can see no good reason for what you're asking me to do, the answer is no. And most of us, the mental gymnastics are really not as complex as they were for Jonah. We do things like, ah, nah. I'm not going to church regularly on Sundays because I need rest. No, uh, I'm not tithing because I don't really want to change my lifestyle. No, I'm not saying sorry to my spouse because I want to be right. No, I'm not giving that up because I happen to like it. For most of us, it's not even about the complex things like forgiving somebody who has sincerely hurt you badly or did something terribly to you, and and, and it is a true emotional struggle. For most of us, it's not even an addiction that truly has a hold of you that you want to give up, but you can't. For most of us, it's simply, I don't want to. Can we be real? Can we, can we stop fronting? Can we stop faking? Can we stop pretending like we have these big spiritual reasons? For most of us, it's simply, that's not really good for me. I don't really think that's good for me. And because no matter what it is that we all say no to God in, we have a little, little prodigal prophet in all of us. Because when we can't see the good reason for God's command, we conclude that there couldn't be one. And at the core, like Jonah, we doubt the goodness, the wisdom, and the justice of God. And because we do, we think that God can't possibly have our best interests at heart. And this human conclusion is as old as time. Mankind has been concluding this about God ever since the beginning. In the garden, the fruit looked good. It was pleasing. It looked desirable to make one wise. So why would it be wrong to eat it? God must not know best. God must not have our best interests at heart. So no, let's eat. And therefore we run. But au contraire, God does know best. And God does have our best interests at heart, doesn't he? God does. And when we surrender our will despite our ability to see the good in it or the right in it or the benefit of it, it winds up making us a better us. For example, when I'm committed to the house of God, suddenly I find myself growing closer to God, trusting him more, not to mention the statistically proven benefits 
of a commitment to church. Here, here they are. Number one, significantly lower risk of depression and improved mental health when you go to church on a regular basis. Better ability to manage time and achieve goals. Less involved in deviant behavior. Better grades in school and higher overall education achievement. Significantly lower risk of death and longer life expectancy for those who are committed to the house of God. And you ready for this one? Number six, this this is facts. This is not me making it up. And number six, people who go to church more regularly have better sex lives. Come on, somebody. Look at the, the men are going, amen, amen, pastor, amen. Maybe God was right when he said, not forsaking the assembling of yourself together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more when you see the day approaching. How about this one? When we are generous and put God first in our finances, listen to the statistically proven benefits of that. Number one, it reduces stress. Number two, it causes better physical health. Number three, it enhances your sense of purpose. Number four, it lessens depression. Number five, you live longer. Number six, you grow in greater wealth. And are you ready for this one? Better sex lives. No, I'm just playing about that one. The fact of the matter is, God knew what he was talking about. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. The world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. When we say sorry to our spouse, here's what it does. These are statistical, proven facts. When we say sorry to our spouse, it reduces our stress levels. It strengthens our relationship. It improves our mental health. It boosts our immunity. It enhances our connections. It has a positive impact on our overall well-being. And number seven, it improves our sex lives. All of that. Maybe God knew what he was talking about when he said, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. What's the point? We run because we add it all up and we go, ah, no. Can't turn out good for us. Ah, no. I don't see how that's going to be for my benefit. But what we're doing is we're, we're doubting the wisdom, the justice, the goodness of God. We're doubting that God has our best interests at heart, but he does. We can trust it. And if you need further proof, all you need to do is look on the cross. Because on the cross, God proved he has our best interests at heart because he took our sins so that we didn't have to. He paid the price for our separation from him so that we could be forever united with him in heaven and eternity forever and ever so we can have abundant life. But Jonah ran because Jonah couldn't see it. Are you running from what God is dealing with you about? Simply because you don't trust God has your best interest at heart and you think your way is better? Can I remind you of the words of the psalmist? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Number three, Jonah would say, when we run, it always leads to dangerous places. Verse number three of chapter one says, Jonah went down to Joppa. He found a ship there. He paid the fare. He boarded the ship and he went to Tarshish. When we run from God, we are destined to go down. And when we run from God, we are destined to pay a price that will cost us more than we are willing to pay. 
Jonah doesn't see all of that, and so Jonah boards the SS Disobedience Cruise Liner. He heads for Tarshish. It's 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. Nineveh is only 500 miles from where he was. And you know what this tells me? Sometimes it's harder to disobey God than it is to obey God. And sometimes we, do, we jump through all of these hoops. We deal with all of the internal poisons and the inner struggles and, and then the cover-ups and then the lies and then the, you know, the front and then, and then the fake hallelujahs and glory be to God's and, the, and where does the, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And we deal with all that. We go 2,500 miles out of the way to disobey God when it's only 500 miles in one direction in order to obey God. And the emotions and the self-denial and the nagging feeling on the inside and the lack of peace running from God can be hard work. You might remember what the what God told Saul of Tarsus before he was the apostle Paul. He met him on a road of disobedience one day. Thank God that he meets us on our roads of disobedience. And he said this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Another version says this, why are you persecuting me? It's useless for you to fight against my will. In other words, hard for you to fight against the inner nudgings of God to surrender to his will. And by the way, those inner nudgings are a good thing. The fact that you feel them is wonderful. You ought to thank God that you feel it. You ought to get concerned if you don't. You ought to get concerned if you can knowingly disobey God and not have anything on the inside of you saying, why are you running from me? Don't do that. If you don't feel that, get concerned. But if you do feel that, here's what it means. It means the Holy Ghost is living on the inside of you. It means you are a child of God. It means that something is happening in your soul that is saying it's time to get right with me. But it's hard to live like that. Because it leads to dangerous places. And you know what, what's interesting about dangerous places? Everybody can always see the dangers that runners are running into, right? Everybody can always see the dangers that other people are going into. As I'm reading this story, and maybe you feel like this too as you're reading the story, you know, because it's, it's not our story, it's Jonah's story. And so you're reading the story, and Jonah's about to get on a boat, and if you're like me, you're going, no, not a boat, Jonah. Jonah, what are you doing getting on the boat? Jonah, don't you know it's safer on dry land? Jonah, why would you, don't you know there are sharks in them, their waters? Okay, maybe in this case, whales, you know. But you say, no, you could see it. You could see danger is coming. It's always easy to see the dangerous places that other people are going to when you run from God. It's hard to see them in our case. And the reason is because there's a special travel agent that books all of the cruises on the SS disobedience. His name is Satan. And what he does is he lines everything up to make it look like it's okay. Because in Bible times, you couldn't just walk down to a port and get on a ship going 2,500 miles in one direction. Ships only left ports like four to six weeks at a time. And, that, and the circumstances had to be just right. They wouldn't go if the winds weren't right or the weather wasn't predicted to be right. Everything had to be in perfect alignment. And on this day that Jonah decides to disobey God, he just happens to walk down to Joppa and right there, there is a cruise ship waiting for him to go in the exact opposite direction. Isn't that what the enemy does to us? No, God, no, 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 God, no, 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 I'm not putting you first, and you get a raise at work. What's it going to be? No big deal to God. What's the big deal? 
No, 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 God, you know what? For three months out of the year, I'm just not going to church because three months out of the year, I just want to sleep in late on Sunday. What's the difference between being in person and being online anyway? And all of a sudden, you know, you're rested, you're feeling good. You say, ah, this is paid off. All of a sudden, everything starts to line up for you. But listen to me. The devil will accommodate you. He will make it look right, feel right, even make you think God is fixing things for you and aligning things for you and working things out for you and answering your prayers. But just because things work out doesn't mean it's God. Listen to me, listen to me. The devil opens doors too. The devil closes doors too. That's why you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. So that you can't be tricked by circumstance. Because before you ever walk through an open door or push past a closed door, you ought to check what the Holy Spirit on the inside of you is saying. Because the Holy Spirit can see further than you. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows if it's a trick. He knows if it's three-card Monty. He knows what's going on. And he's the guide in your life. It always leads to dangerous places. The storm is coming. And not just dangerous physical places, but dangerous spiritual places. Did you notice what happened to Jonah? Jonah was in this boat. And it's a dangerous place, not only physically. The mariners, the seafarers, they're throwing off all the cargo. Right? It's, they're scared for their life. What was Jonah doing? He was not just sleeping. The Bible said he was fast asleep. He was oblivious to what was going on. You know what Jonah was doing? He was sleeping the sleep of sorrow. You've slept that sleep before, huh? Well, you just wanted to just close your eyes to escape from the world. It wasn't because you were really tired, but you were just sleeping because God was dealing with you. And instead of looking at the situation head on, you pretended to tuck your head. You put your head in the sand. You slept the sleep of sorrow. And he is oblivious. And they actually ask him to pray. And there's no indication that Jonah actually agrees to pray. What a sad case on your spiritual condition, Jonah. Because running from God leads to dangerous places, not just physically, but also spiritually. Did you notice number four? We're running from God does. It always hurts the people that are closest. These people, this is their livelihood, the cargo on the boat. And because Jonah was disobedient, the storm hits them all. And they start throwing their livelihood. Just imagine this. Just imagine you get your paycheck, you cash it at the bank, and you start throwing $20 bill after $20 bill just overboard. That's what they were doing. It was hurting the people that were closest. You see, we think, you know, you hear people say this, what's the big deal? Who's, I'm not hurting anybody but me, but you're. But you're. Because you can't live like that and not have the kind of attitude God wants you to have. Not have the kind of compassion that God wants you to have. Not have the kind of kindness that God wants you to have. Not not be trying to cover your child. You're hurting everybody closest to you. Eventually it begins to manifest itself. But here's the real thing that Jonah would say. Running reveals the depth of our commitment to Christ. They ask Jonah to pray. They don't know that he is the cause of the storm yet. Jonah ignores them, so they cast lots, and they ask Jonah some questions. Jonah chapter 1, verse number 7. And they said to one another, 
Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, please tell us, check this out, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They now know it's Jonah and they ask him some questions. Who's causes this trouble upon us and what is your occupation? In other words, what is your mission or purpose? Where do you come from? What is your country? In other words, what is your place? And who are your people? What is your race? Purpose, place, people. Three identity questions. This is how we define ourselves. We define ourselves by our purpose, by our mission, by our work. We define ourselves by the communities or families that we belong to. We define ourselves by our missions, what it, what our life means. We define ourselves by the places that we feel most home at, by our national allegiances and patriotic bents. All of these things define us in many ways, and in some ways, they are things to be proud of. They get to who we feel we are. And how we answer these questions tell us what is most important to us. If somebody were to say to me, who are you? I would say this. I'd say, I'm Frank Santora. I'm a Christ follower. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm the pastor of Faith Church. I'm an Italian-American. And I'm a suffering Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> That's what I would say. And by saying all this, I would be letting everybody know how I define myself. I would be letting everybody know what is most important to me. Well, the sailors have one urgent goal. They want to know which God has been angered so they can determine what they should do. In ancient times, every racial group Every people group, every place, every profession had its own gods. And to find out what deity Jonah offended, they didn't have to ask Jonah the name of the god. All they had to do was ask him who he was, and that would be inextricably linked to who or what he worshipped. Who you are or who you were and what you worshipped were two sides of the same coin. And it was the most fundamental layer of your identity. Every people... Even people who don't believe in God worship something. See, when people say, well, I don't believe in God. I, I, I'm, religion's not really for me. I don't really worship anything. I'm like, lie. Let me hang out with you for just a couple hours. I'll find out what you worship. Let me see your checkbook. I'll find out what you worship. Let me see where you spend your time. I'll find out what you worship. Let me see your social media. I'll find out what you worship. Let me see your little tagline on how you define yourself. I'll find out what you worship. See, worshiping something is part of every human being because we were created to worship. And if we don't worship the one true and living God, we will find another God to worship in its place. And that God will be, and we will worship on the altar of work or on the altar of finances or on the altar of addiction or on the altar of all these other things and patriotism and race and all of that kind of stuff. And we worship on these altars because that's, we need an identity. And we'll worship on these altars. And what I, what I find particularly interesting about Jonah is how he answers the question. He says this, he says, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He identifies himself, listen carefully, this is, this is I wish I had time for this. He identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, 
And from that we may infer that his ethnicity is therefore foremost in his self-identity. While Jonah had faith in God, it appears that his identity was built first on his race and nationality, and that was more important to him than his relationship with God. And in Jonah's case, this is not a stretch, because God told Jonah to do what? Go preach to Nineveh. But who was Nineveh? An enemy of his people. And because Nineveh was an enemy of the Hebrews, because Nineveh was an enemy of Israel, because Nineveh was wicked to Israel, Jonah said, I identify first as a Hebrew and then as a believer. And so God, no. What happens when God tests your identity? What happens when God takes the things that you think are most important and the way that you define yourself and God asks you to put your Christianity and your belief in him and your stand on the word of God above everything that you hold sacred in your life? What happens then? Here's what happens. Your heart gets exposed. We may believe Jesus died for our sins, And yet our significance and security can be far more grounded in career and families and hobbies and in our financial worth than in our love for Christ and the areas in which we run from God expose our heart. But God is a jealous God. Oh, God is so jealous. He is jealous for you. God doesn't want just a part of your heart. God wants your whole heart. And that's why in so many places in Scripture, over and over again, Jesus himself tells us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not part of your heart, but all of your heart. I was reading this story in his book, Driven, um, by Michael Jordan, and he was visiting the home of a friend. And uh, he, they were going to go out for dinner. And so Michael Jordan said to his friend, he said, uh, can I borrow a coat, a jacket, it's cold outside. His, his friend said, yeah, just, just go down into the hallway there, into the closet, pick whatever you want. Well, Jordan comes back and he's got an armful of gear. And, and it's all gear that is Puma gear. And Puma is a competitor to Nike. And so Jordan dumps all this gear on the floor, goes into the kitchen, grabs a butcher knife, and he begins to cut every bit of that Puma gear into pieces and shreds. He takes it out, he dumps it in the garbage, he comes back into his friend, and he says, listen, call my, call my guy, and tell him to replace all of this with Nike stuff, but that never let me again see you ever wearing Puma stuff. Why? It was a conflict of interest. What happens if God takes a butcher knife, the sword of the Spirit, to every area in our life that is in competition with Him? And begins to say, no, 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 you got to throw that out. You can't have that in your life. That's garbage. That can't be in your life. That can't be part of you. You cannot be full-heartedly committed to me if that stuff is ruling and reigning in your life. And it's time for you to cut it all off, to destroy it. Said another way, if we love finances or work or family or pleasure or race or country or whatever more than God, God becomes Jealous. 
Pastor, did you say God was jealous? Are we back in high school? Is this two guys liking the same girls fighting against one another? Is God really jealous? Show me a person who's not jealous when somebody prioritizes something over them and I will show you somebody that doesn't really love. Love, jealousy, is a sign of love. Imagine, read this little example. Imagine I'm out in a restaurant on a date with somebody other than my wife. And you walk over to me and you say, uh, Pastor, what about Pastor Lisa? And I say, oh, I take her out lots of times. But me and her, we're just, just going to have a good time tonight. And what would be even more strange is if I came home and my wife knew that I was on this date and she greeted me at the door and said, hey, honey, how'd your date go? If she did that, you know what that would mean? She checked out. Her heart's not vested anymore. She doesn't care. Jealousy is a sign of love. And unlike us, where jealousy can, can be a sign, can be a bad thing if used in the wrong way, with God it's not at all. And it should absolutely stun us in every single way that the God of the universe, who has no inadequacies in him, no deficiencies in him, he's not jealous for us because he's exposing a fault in him. He's jealous for us because he loves us. And the part of us that he's jealous for, our, for is our whole heart, not part of our heart, but the entire thing. God is not satisfied with a section. He's not satisfied with a portion. He's not satisfied for a date here and there. He's not satisfied. He doesn't want an open relationship. He's not like Will Smith and his wife. He wants a full relationship with you. You can't cheat on God. God doesn't want you to commit adultery on him. God wants all of your heart. And here's the question is, why Why does God want all of our heart? Because God knows that our life follows our heart. Listen to what it says, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. God wants you to experience the abundant life that Jesus came to give you. And every time you run and your heart wanders further, It wanders further off the course and the life that God has designed for you and your life becomes different than the abundant life that God wants you to have. And this picture that is being painted for us, perhaps more vividly in the New Testament than even here, is the picture of the prodigal prodigal son. The New Testament counterpart to the prodigal prophet is the prodigal son. And you remember what God did for that prodigal uh, son, what the father did, is that father ran towards the runner. You remember that? What does God do when, when our heart has, has swayed away from him? Does God punish? Does God hurt? Does God, or does God run toward us? What did that father do when he saw his son a great way off in the distance? The Bible said the father ran to his son. And Aristotle said it best. He said great men don't run. It's below their dignity. But what did God do in this story? God ran toward the runner. It's obvious in the story of the prodigal son, but it's a little blurred in the story of the prodigal prophet, but it's there. And where is it? Jonah chapter four. Jonah chapter one, verse four. 
But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. And then verse number 17, again, now the Lord had prepared, had prepared, had prepared, not just suddenly thought, what do I do now, what do I do now, but had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I don't have time to break that all down for you, but here's what I want to tell you, and here's what you need to hear, that the winds and the waves that should have killed you and the whales that seemingly swallowed you up but have not taken you out means that God is running towards you. It means that God is fighting for you. It means that there's a war going on for your heart. The circumstances around your life, that's God fighting for you. The places that should have but didn't, that's God fighting for you. The stuff that was meant but to take you out but miraculously did not, that is God fighting for you. Even when you ran, God was fighting for you. Even when you said no, God was fighting for you. Even though you gave the enemy a foothold, God was fighting for you. Even though you created your own mess, God was fighting for you. Even though you brought hurt on the people around you, God is fighting for you. Even though you would not surrender your will, God is fighting for you. You couldn't see the wisdom. You doubted the goodness of God. But God is fighting for you. He's pushing back the darkness. God is fighting for you. He's jealous for your heart. God is fighting for you. He's fighting for you. He's fighting